Today we're going to be looking at Ephesians 4.28 and just kind of just a little reminder to set the context of where we are. In Ephesians 4.17-24, through 24, there's a passage there that talks about who we used to be before we met Christ and how in Jesus we're a new person, we have a new identity, but to live that out we have to put off the old and put on the new through the renewing of our uh, minds. It might be a biblical picture of that would be kind of uh, when, you know, after Jesus lays, raised Lazarus from the dead, he told him to take the grave clothes uh, off of him. So uh, in a sense, you know, we got to take the, when we were made alive in Christ, we still got to take the grave clothes off, you know, the habits, the hurts, the hangups, to use celebrate recovery language we have, uh, the, the, you know, the sins, the struggles we have in our lives, repent, change through the renewing of our minds. And so We've talked about then uh, verses 25 through 32 are some very specific, very practical examples of that. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, a new person in Christ lives as an honest person, putting off lying, putting on telling the truth. Last week, we talked about putting off unrighteous anger, putting on righteous anger, putting on forgiveness, kindness, those kind of things. Next week, we're going to talk about our words. Now, do you think that's a relevant subject? Your words ever gotten you in trouble, uh, caused problems uh, in your life? And so we're going to look at uh, you know, kind of a biblical pattern uh, of speech, what we're to put off, what we're to put on. Today, uh, we're going to talk about going from stealing to sharing. Uh, basically, if you wanted to summarize this verse in six words, uh, probably what Paul's saying, stop stealing, work hard, give generously. That's the idea. So if you take a nap, maybe you can hang on to that. All right, stop stealing, work hard, give generously. Now, you may say, well, you know, we're in church. Well, why are we going to talk about stealing? He's going to steal here, right? Uh, and, and there's probably not any armed robbers in the room. Uh, I hope not, but there, there, there's probably not. But uh, I, I, I hope one of the things that we see today is that um, maybe we can steal in more subtle ways. Uh, maybe there's shortcuts that we can take in our lives, but I'm sure there are professing Christians who have been guilty of theft. In fact, you know, you go back a few years ago, remember First Baptist Church Morristown, there was a secretary there who had, over a period of decades had embezzled several hundred thousand dollars and people were just shocked, could not believe uh, this lady would do uh, something like that. And, and so, uh, you know, you never know kind of what's going on underneath the surface with people. And one of the things that we've talked about in Ephesians is that if we're not uh, submitted to Christ, if we're not walking in the Holy Spirit, any of us are capable of committing any sin. Uh, even though we're new in Christ, the old nature is not completely eradicated. I mean, we're dead to sin, alive in Christ. But if we're not believing that, not surrendering, not acting on that, we're still capable of committing uh, any sin. So uh, the main idea here is that as new people in Christ, we're to put off stealing and put on hard work and generosity in its place. Like I said, stop stealing, work hard, uh, be generous. Look at what uh, verse 28 says. I mean, that, that's the, uh, you know, the one verse we're going to focus on. And I'm going to try to go a little bit deeper and get into some of the, kind of some of the heart level issues in, in the way that we uh, approach this. And so, um, and, and remember too, if, if you're not a Christian, a couple things I would say to you is this. One, 
I'd encourage you to consider the wisdom of God. Now, we don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians, but I would encourage you to, to, to consider the wisdom of God here, because one of the reasons I believe that this is true and that people ought to follow Christ is because from my personal experience and from working with a lot of people as a pastor for over 20 years now, it just seems like to me that when we follow God's word, life works, and when we don't follow God's word, life doesn't work. And so I believe that truth corresponds to reality, and if this is reality, it's true, and that's part of the reason why that we should believe it. The, the second thing I would encourage you to consider is that the Bible tells us that if we've broken God's law at any point, we're guilty of all, that we're sinners separated from God. And so are you guilty here? And if not here, where are you guilty? Which would mean, according to Scripture, that you need a Savior. Now, this verse in its context is specifically written to Christians. So you know, what do we need to do with this in our lives as far as living with integrity, working hard, and being generous? How would God's Spirit uh, speak to us through His Word uh, in those areas? So Paul writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, let him who stole steal no longer. Stop stealing. But rather, let him labor, and the word labor there, the Greek word, means toil to the point of exhaustion. So that's why I say it's saying, work hard, stop stealing, work hard. He says, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Be generous. Work hard, or stop stealing, work hard, be generous. But like I said, let's go a little deeper, look at the heart level. So, the first point I want to make to you from the first part of the verse is that we are told here to choose integrity instead of theft. We're told here to choose integrity instead of theft. Now, I think probably we all know that one of the Ten Commandments is uh, you shall not steal, right? Exodus twenty fifteen. Pretty blunt. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, it lists several sins there. And then it says in verse 11 that this is who you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So the whole point of this section of Ephesians is you're not who you were, you're new, you're different, now live like it. Repent of sin. Change how you think about these things and live uh, differently. And, and if I could just kind of throw this in, one of the things that the command not to steal implies, and um, it's an unfortunate but true reality that we actually have to define this in the United States now, is if we're told not to sin, actually if we're told to not even covet our neighbor's property, that would imply the idea of personal property right, rights, which would imply capitalism instead of socialism or communism. And so, you know, when over the next year in the election cycle and all this kind of thing, you hear about this kind of thing, realize that uh, socialism is not a biblical option. Okay? Um, <laughs> <laughs> It's usually Jacob from the sound booth. But um, I mean, as part of a Christian worldview, 
I mean, you know, we understand that there can be excesses and wrongs and, and, and mistreatment of, of capitalism, but the Bible nowhere, uh, you know, teaches a, a societal ownership of things, and the Bible nowhere teaches that the government is uh, the owner of everything or the option for solving everything. Romans 13, the biblical purpose of government is to protect law-abiding citizens from evildoers. That's the purpose of government primarily. And so, uh, you know, the Bible does uh, allow for personal ownership of property, things, all these kind of things. Now, with that said, you know, beyond just like, you know, breaking into someone's house or picking up someone's purse or, you know, just real overt ways of stealing, I want us to think for a minute just about maybe some more subtle ways uh, that, that we can steal. So uh, let me just kind of throw some of these out. A lot of these come from uh, Kent Hughes' commentary on uh, the Ten Commandments. But, you know, like I said, directly just taking things that, that aren't uh, ours. Um, tax theft. You may not like this, but if you're fudging on your taxes, that's stealing. You're stealing from the government. I mean, you read the New Testament, Jesus said it, it's in Romans 13, we're told to pay our taxes. And if we cheat, lie, withhold uh, in dishonest kind of ways, that's theft. How about debt theft? If you have a debt and you don't repay it, that's a form of stealing. It could be a small thing. I remember one time when I made a bet and didn't pay up on it when I was a kid. It's a wonder I didn't get beaten up. I mean, it could be that all the way up to something really big, you know, where you borrow a lot of money or something and, and, and you don't pay it back. Borrowing theft. Like, can I borrow this? And then you keep it? That's a form of theft. Some of you that have some of my books need to repent of this. <laughs> I didn't plan on saying that, but it just came out. It's true. Um, how about welfare theft? If someone who's gaming the system, um, you know, I think one of the saddest things I've ever heard somebody say, you know, Jacob Wilkie teaches kindergarten. And I heard him say one time, you know, they asked kids at the beginning of the year, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? And then one of the kids said, well, I want to draw a check. I mean, that's pitiful. But... It's a, I mean, I'm not, if people have legitimate needs, you know, let's take care of them. But for people, some people, this is an industry. It's a career. And it's sin. Digital theft. I mean, you're illegally copper, you know, not paying attention to copyright rights, pay, not paying for stuff that you're supposed to pay for, uh, you know, those kind of things. Um, plagiarism. Is a, is a form of stealing. You know, it's stealing someone's ideas, stealing someone's words. Cheating is a form of stealing. I mean, both these things are, are dishonesty and stealing. Uh, Hughes talks about management theft, and uh, he, he, he defines it this way. He says, this occurs through abusing employees by paying inadequate wages for services rendered or by allowing unsafe working conditions to exist Businesses can also steal uh, by deceiving consumers, unfair profit-taking, marketing inferior products, or, or building goods that are basically built to not last, that wear out, have to be replaced, become obsolete really quickly. And see, the thing about theft, when uh, management does that, and we'll get to employee theft in a second, 
there's always consequences, and it drives up cost for everyone. You know why sometimes part of the reason that stuff is so expensive at stores, part of it is because of the margin that stores are building in for both shoplifting and employee theft. So one thing affects another thing. Think about employee uh, theft, time theft. I mean, you're cheating on your hours in some way, not being honest. Um, work theft, being, meaning you're there in body, but you're not really working. Um, and, and remember this, and we'll kind of get to this in the second point, but if you profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you ought to be the best employee wherever you work. That's part of your witness, I mean, people, they may disagree with what you believe, but they ought to look at your life and think, this person has integrity, this person works hard, this person sets an example, they're exemplary. I mean, think about Joseph in, in, in Egypt. I mean, the people there trusted him with everything, and, you know, he could have just been like, he could have taken every shortcut in the world, and it's not fair that I'm here. You know, he could have come up with every justification, every excuse, but if we have integrity... We do what's right, even if people aren't looking, because we're doing it not as unto man, but unto the Lord. That's what we see in Ephesians chapter 6. How about expense account theft? I mean, you know, if you're saying something's a work expense and it's really a personal expense, that's stealing. That's dishonest. Uh, You know, being dishonest about the time worked, uh, pilfering supplies, Using stuff that's not your that belongs to your job for, for personal stuff, embezzling. There's probably other ways we can steal. But but this is my point. Let's not take shortcuts. Let's um, not just say oh, I'm never gonna I'd never rob a bank or something like that. Let's go a little deeper and look at okay where am I am I making little compromises. Let's live with integrity as followers of Christ. Go above and beyond. And if there's something on that list, it's kind of like, uh-oh. Make it right. Make it right. So choose integrity instead of theft. Now, uh, I want to look at a couple of verses in, in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. And, and, and just like I say... That take this to just a heart level and, and not an, an outward thing. So, Jake, if you could, would you, would you go back to those verses? So, um, Romans 13, 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, think about it. Here, here's, the, here's the point of everything. Two great commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. And, and he says, uh, we love our neighbor by keeping these commandments. And the next verse says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And, and so we love other people by treating them the right way, obviously, uh, stealing would be an unloving thing because we're hurting someone else. We're taking something that's theirs for ourselves. And so that's unloving. So that's sinful. And so the ultimate point of uh, the, 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 uh, the Bible, really, 
is love God, love other people, love is manifested in our actions. And so if we've broken any of these commandments, we're sinners separated from God, we need a Savior, Jesus came and died for us, and if we know Him and we say we follow Him, then we're called to live in a different way because the love of God is now in us. So, uh, you know, we're, we're called to, we're equipped to by the Holy Spirit, love God, love other people, and where we're not, we repent of that, whether it's stealing or any other issue. So we're to choose integrity instead of theft, but the root of that is love. Okay, so that's what we're to put off. Now, let's look at what we're to put on. So we're to put on, first of all, working hard. And here's the way I want to word it, like I say, going a little deeper with it. We're to be a producer Instead of a consumer. Now, you know what Americans are known for? <laughs> We're known for being consumers. All right? And, and, and maybe a better way to say this is being just a consumer. But, you know, something's a little scary is, is how much, the, what percentage of our economy is built on consumerism. Because, you know, you have a bad enough recession and people can't, don't have disposable income, you know, it's like a snowball at, at, at some point. Um, but, but notice what he says here. He says, don't steal, but rather uh, labor, toil to the point of exhaustion, work hard, uh, it, doing what it, working with your hands what is good. So a couple things there. So we're, we're told to work hard. Now, if you go back to the Ten Commandments once again, we're told, you know, to take a Sabbath. And then we think of that as a command to rest, but it's also a command to work, right? Work six days, rest one. Really, part of the idea of the Sabbath is, you know, we're not to, really, we're not to be workaholics, but we're not to be lazy either. You're saying work is good. God created us to work. Uh, it's, it's not something that came about because of the fall. It predates the fall. Now, the, the qualifier that he gives here is working what's good. So that would mean that work is good unless it's immoral or unethical. Okay? There's just some things. I mean, you can't be like a Christian drug dealer. <laughs> right? You can't be like a Christian mafia boss. Um, uh, you know, uh, you can't be, I couldn't make the joke about you can't be a Christian lawyer, but we know like Will and David, that's not true. But um, I, so there's kind of the negative side of that, that, um, you know, there's, if it's not good in the sense of moral or ethical, it's not pleasing to God. But the positive side of this is with our work, we're to be a blessing. We're to be a producer not just a consumer. We're to make a difference. We're to provide for human flourishing. And so, you know, we need to get past the attitude of work is something that we can do just to make it to the weekend or just to have, you know, enough for our family to be able to buy some stuff. You see, that's a consumer mentality. 
A producer mentality is, okay, you know, what's my passion? What's God called me to do? What's God wired me to do? And how can I use that to be a blessing to other people and take care of my family at at the same time? I mean, I would encourage you, if you can at all, I understand some people are just in situations where you got to take care of your family, got to work hard, got to do the best you can. But if you've got a passion, do everything you can to pursue that, especially if you're young. Uh, Because, I mean, if you're doing what you love, it's not like you're really working a a lot of the time. Um, But you know, we're told 1 Timothy 5, 8, uh, that if someone doesn't provide for their own, that they've denied the faith. Um, So, you know, we're to work for our family, we're to work for provision, but it goes beyond that. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, like I say, work predates the fall. The fall made it hard. You know, in Genesis 3, it's, it's weeds and those kind of things. It, it, it's hard because we're fighting against a sinful, decaying world and uh, fighting with sometimes sinful, decaying people, and we're fighting against our own flesh. But, but here God said this. He says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Notice what he says. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God put us on the earth as his stewards, as as his designated rulers of the earth, so to speak. uh, He put us here for um, him to work through us. To shape culture, to make the world what he created it to be. It says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is what theologians call the cultural mandate. It's the idea that God has put us here, not just to consume, uh, but to create, but to produce, but to make a difference, but you know, to shape culture, uh, for him to work through us for the good of humanity, for human flourishing, to be a blessing to those around us. And what he's saying is, is our work is a calling, it's a vocation, and any work that would be good, that's not immoral, unethical, that, that's positive, that's a blessing, that's helping people, that's making a difference, as we do that, God is working through us. And so what what this has done is it should erase any distinction between the sacred and the secular. You know, sometimes we say in in, in church, um, you know, God's called somebody to be a pastor. God's called somebody to be a missionary. Something like that. Can I tell you that that is not evangelical? Well, I'm not saying God doesn't do that, but to say that those are the only people who are called is not actually evangelical Christianity. It's the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Because in the Roman Catholic Church, one of the sacraments of the church is what's called holy orders. Where uh, men are ordained, as some men are ordained as deacons, priests, uh, or bishops. And uh, though it's like a special class, a clerical class, you have you heard clergy, laity, that's not in the Bible. That's from the Roman Catholic Church. According to the Bible, every believer is a priest with direct access to go to God uh, in prayer and worship and uh, empowered by God through the Spirit to go and minister to other people in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and so, but, but for hundreds of years, Longer than that, really. This there been okay. 
This is vocational ministry. These people are called. They're special. They're above us. They're set aside. And everybody else, they're just kind of regular Joe doing their thing. They're not special. Okay? Then, Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther uh, comes along. And, and, and this is important to understand. There's a couple things I want to read you here. Uh, this is part of a little short interview between Stephen Nichols and a church historian by the name uh, of, of Michael uh, Horton. And so he's, um, the, the interviewer is, is, uh, says, one of the crucial doctrines of Luther is vocation. Could you expand on that a little for us? Now, listen to this because, you know, everybody here works, right? I mean, you're going to work tomorrow. Uh, you're uh, taking care of kids tomorrow, which is the <laughs> toughest job of all. Right? Uh, there's not an honest man in this room who would say, I don't care how bad of a job he has, who would rather stay home and take care of a screaming two-year-old as opposed to going and doing whatever work he's doing. Some of you are doing both. I mean, just single parents, killing yourself. I mean, so, but, I mean, what does that mean? And so Michael Horton says this. He says, you know, a lot of people think of justification is, is, as the material principle of the Reformation, with Scripture alone as the formal principle. But one historian has said, actually, that in terms of the greatest impact on the culture, it was the doctrine of vocation that made the biggest difference long term. And you can sort of see why, because people who aren't Christians, who aren't going to church, who aren't hearing the gospel proclaimed week after week, have still been touched by Christians who are. And there were so many Christians who were revolutionized by the gospel that it changed their whole outlook on Monday morning. And that should be true of us as well. Were they happier just because they understood that they were justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? That's part of it. But there was more to it. They had categories for thinking about Monday through Friday. They weren't just working for the weekend. And some of you who are children of the 80s, like me, that makes a song pop into your mind. Um, uh, they had a transcendent view of things. R.C. Sproul has been saying for years, right now counts forever. And they had a real sense of that. Even when a milkmaid is milking a cow, Luther said, she is glorifying God just as much as a preacher in a pulpit preaching a sermon. And so the interviewer says, this is one of the things Luther helped us with. He recovered the word vocation, which by the time of Luther really was only applied to the priest. Ordained ministry, yeah, Horton says. To the monks, the nuns who had given their life to the church. Everyone else was just putting in time. time. So Luther comes along and calls these ordinary roles, fathers or sons or daughters or wives, a calling. And our work is a calling. You sometimes hear in Christian circles that someone received a call. But really, everyone is called, even non-Christians. That, that is another revolutionary thing about it. The Reformers believed that Scripture taught that everyone is called. Even people who don't believe in God receive a calling because they are created in the image of God. And in His common grace, God actually causes non-Christians to serve Christians even. You don't have to buy Christian milk from a Christian cow. From a Christian cow with John 3.16 on the cup. 
Our vocation is one of those things that we share with everyone around us. When I'm loving and serving my neighbors, when I'm changing diapers, when I'm cleaning the car, all of these things are callings. And we don't have just one. We have a bunch of callings, Luther said. And it really makes a big difference. And the gospel wasn't, let's just all go to work with a greater sense of the grandeur of what we're doing, but really a sense of uh, you have no one to pacify anymore. Everyone, he's talking about them before they understood justification by grace alone through faith alone, was so anxious and spent all their energy, if they cared about it at all, on climbing their way to heaven. Well, we don't have to. God has climbed down to us. Now, what do we do? We love and serve him by loving and serving our neighbors. And I love Luther's line, God doesn't need our good works, our neighbors do. God doesn't need them, we don't need them. But our neighbors do. So what I would encourage you to do is to go to work tomorrow with a sense of calling. That you're doing this to the glory of God for the good of people. And that's a real different mindset. And and let me just read one other thing that goes along with this. I I, I read it, uh, shared this earlier uh, back when we were in Ephesians chapter 2. But it fits here. I want to read it again. It's by R.C. Sproul. And he says, the big idea of the Christian life is quorum Deo. Remember this term? Quorum Deo captures the essence of the Christian life. This phrase literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. To live quorum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. God is omnipresent. There's no place so remote that we can escape his penetrating gaze. To live all of life, quorum Deo, is to live a life of integrity. It is a life of wholeness that finds its unity and coherency in the majesty of God. A fragmented life is a life of disintegration. It is marked by inconsistency, disharmony, confusion, conflict, contradiction, and chaos. The Christian who compartmentalizes his or her life into two sections of the religious and non-religious has failed to grasp the big idea. The big idea is that all of life is religious or none of life is religious. To divide between the religious and the non-religious is itself a sacrilege. This means that if a person fulfills his or her vocation, there's that word again, calling, as a steelmaker, attorney, or homemaker, quorum Deo, then that person is acting every bit as religiously as a soul-winning evangelist who fulfills his vocation. Integrity is found where men and women live their lives in this pattern of consistency. It is a pattern that functions in the same basic way in church and out of church. It's a life that's open before God. It is a life in which all that is done is done as to the Lord. It is a life lived by principle, by humility before God. It is a life lived under the tutelage of conscience that is held captive by the word of God. Coram Deo before the face of of God. And listen, if that's how we live, if that's our mindset, if that's our conviction, you're not going to have to worry about stealing. There'll be integrity. You're not going to have to worry about somebody working hard because we're doing it as unto the Lord. They're going to have to worry about somebody just living to be a consumer and wasting their lives on what they can get, but on what they can produce. Okay? So work hard. But then he also says, Give generously. In other words, be a giver instead of a taker. Now, 
This is kind of radical. Remember, this is written to those of us who are new creations in Christ. And so here's the thing. Everybody's created to work. It's under common grace. Everybody's supposed to work. Everybody's supposed to take care of their family. We all need certain things. But what he's saying here is that if you're a Christian, you don't work just to get. You work to give. Do you see that? I mean, look, look at what he says here. Jacob, put verse 28 back on the screen if you would. I mean, let's just look at it uh, together here. Stop stealing, labor, work hard. That, and the, the word that there in the Greek is something that's called a purpose clause. In other words, this is ultimately why you do what I've just told you to do. Why do you stop stealing? Why do you work hard? So that he may have something to give him who has need. And so one of the, the common refrains to the New Testament is in the church, we're to take care of those who are poor, to take care of those who, who are needy. We see uh, several commands like that. So, uh, but I, I just kind of want to go a little bit beyond that and just remind us that as Christians, if you're not a Christian, I'm not talking to you right now, uh, as Christians, we are commanded to give. We're commanded to be givers more than takers. We're commanded to be generous here and in many other places. In fact, if I could kind of just bring this around to where we started, I would say this. You know who Christians steal from more than anybody? God. Let's read Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. He says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me, but you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes and so that he will not destroy the fruit of the ground. Nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, <coughs> says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed and so on and so forth. And I understand and that, you know, Christians debate today whether this was just talking to Israel. And in the New Testament, uh, you know, are, is, is it grace giving, those kind of things? That's a secondary issue. I mean, not everybody at True Life agrees on that. Not even all of our elders agree on that. And, and that's fine. But what all of our elders agree on and what the Bible clearly teaches is that uh, as Christians, we are called to be generous. In fact, I, I would say, just to, to quote another pastor, for Christians under grace, to give less than those, what people gave under law is really a disgrace. Giving's a heart issue. Um, it's a response to the grace of God. We're called to be generous. So are we giving God our best are we giving God our leftovers? He said earlier in, in the book of Malachi, in chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 6 through 8, he, 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 talked to, he said, His son honors his father, a servant is master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name? Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? And here's what he said. He said, you offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? He says, take it to your governor. I don't want it. 
And so here's the idea. What kind of sacrifice were they supposed to offer? Spotless, pure, perfect, the best. They're like, well, we got to give God something, but we don't want to give him the best. We want to keep that for ourselves. And so we'll just give him, I mean, you know, the main, the lame, sick, they're going to die anyway. What's it going to hurt to kill them? They were giving God their leftovers instead of their best. And God says, take it to your governor. Colossians 1.18 says that we're to give Jesus the preeminence, the first place in all things. Does he have the preeminence in this part of our lives? You see, the Bible teaches us that God's the owner, we're the steward. What we have is a gift from him. We manage what he gives us. There used to be a joke uh, with my kids when they were little. We'd be out at a restaurant or something, uh, and I'd eat food off their plates. And as probably every dad in this room has, has done before. It's the fatherly prerogative, I think. And, and, and they'd be like, uh, Dad, stop stealing my food. And I would be like, well, if I paid for it, how can I be stealing it? <laughs> and um, you still don't buy it, do you, Lily? Uh, <laughs> But my point is this, if what we have is given to us by God, if every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above, including our next breath, if our lives were purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross and we belong to him, uh, if we don't give him what he, back what he asks of us, we're stealing from him. Now, whether you believe in tithing, whether you believe in grace giving, I don't care. My question would be, is are you generous? Are you giving God your first and your best? Are you giving God your leftovers? Um, a lady called into the Paul Harvey show several years ago to ask a question. She said, I have a turkey that's been in the freezer for 23 years. <laughs> and she said, is it still good? Can we eat it? He said, well, technically, if it's been kept under zero the whole time, that yes, it would be safe to eat, but it's lost its flavor, and uh, I would recommend not eating. He said, she said, okay, that's what I thought. I'll give it to the church. Giving God our leftovers instead of our first and our best. So what does the Bible teach us about giving in a nutshell? I'll close with this quickly because I'm about out of time. Let's tell you nine things. If you want biblical convictions about giving, here's nine things. We give our first fruits. Proverbs 3, 9, what I've been talking about. We're to give systematically. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, Paul says this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Why the first day of the week? That's when they had church services. It's part of our worship. Now, I'm not saying there's not other ways to give. I mean, we give online. It's kind of automatically important. If it's you're giving God your first and your best, that's a way to do it. That's why I say systematically, regularly, but it's planned, it's purposeful, it's intentional that we are giving back to God. Not God doesn't need it, but God works through practical means. It takes money to do ministry, and he wants to use our money to be a blessing, to meet people's needs, to help build up the church, to plant churches, to evangelize, uh, to do things like that. How are we supposed to give? We're to give sacrificially. We're to give sacrificially. So, I mean, you know, forget the tithing versus grace-giving debate. Let's move that and past that and say, is it costing us anything? Is it hurting us at all to give? 
Paul said, 2 Corinthians 8.1, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep, their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. It's talking about sacrificial giving. Four, uh, we give with a surrendered heart. In verse 5 there he says, Not only as we hope, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. And so here's the reality. You can give, you can be generous without your heart being surrendered to the Lord. People can give for philanthropic reasons that have nothing to do with God. But you can't be surrendered to the Lord and not also give generously at the same time. That's what scripture teaches. You give him our life and our stewardship of time, talent, and treasures flows from that. We're to give gracefully. You say, what does that mean? Well, 2 Corinthians 8, 6, and 7 says, So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. So he's saying just as much as faith, how we talk, our knowledge, our diligence, all these other things are expressions of God's grace flowing through us. So also is our giving. And I think what this does, you know, I've heard Christians say before, well, I give my time, so I don't need to give financially. This would say it's a grace you can't pick and choose. It's not a buffet line. We're to give proportionately. 2 Corinthians 8, 12 through 15 for if there's first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little has no lack. It's proportional. It's percentage-wise. This is part of the reason why I think the New Testament still teaches tithing. What he's saying is it's not based on what you actually have. It's based on what you give. In other words, someone who makes $10,000 a year and gives $1,000, and someone who makes $100,000 a year and gives $10,000 are giving the exact same thing in the Lord's sight. It's proportional. That's the idea. Uh, he says to give cheerfully. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves a cheerful giver. Why don't we talk about giving a lot? Why don't we pass uh, offering plates around here? Because we want you to give cheerfully from the heart or not give. We don't want to guilt you into it. We don't want to pressure you into it. Um, we want it to be cheerfully from the heart. Uh, we're to give confidently, 2 Corinthians 9, 8 through 11. He says, he who, sears, he, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully for all, will also reap bountifully. We can give confidently that God is going to provide, that God is going to take care of us. And then we give worshipfully. And the last verse there says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. God gave his son to us. He gave his all. So whatever we give is just a response to his grace. It's an act of worship. That's why we give. That's how we give. That, that's what, in a nutshell, the Bible teaches about that. So let me close with this quote. John Wesley said this, if those who gain all they can, work hard, and save all they can, will likewise give all they can, then the more they gain, the more they will grow in grace, and the more treasure they will lay up in heaven. Nothing wrong with making money 
It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. He says, work hard, have integrity, give generously. Listen, if you're having financial struggles, you say, I'd like to give. I don't even know how to do that right now. We have a financial coaching ministry. If you're interested in that, contact our office or write that on the connection card. Turn it in. We'll get you uh, matched up with one of our financial coaches. And I promise you that if you're willing, they can help you uh, with that in some really practical ways. So the idea, again, he's talking to Christians. For new creations in Christ, in Christ, by his grace, by his power, this is how we're to live. With integrity, with hard work, with generosity. Are we living that way? Is there some way that we need to repent? If you're not a Christian, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, including you. Jesus came. He died for you. He he rose again to give you new life. Listen, you can't work your way to heaven. You can't give your way to heaven. Uh, All you can do is surrender to Christ, receive the grace of God, and we would encourage you to do that. So uh, let let me close this in prayer this morning. And as I pray, I just encourage you to pray and listen to the Lord's voice, to listen to his spirit. As he would speak to you, I encourage you to do what he tells you to do. If you need to talk about-